Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Amen. Going to do something a little bit uh, unusual this morning with the sermon. I've never done this before. Well, I guess except for the earlier service. (laughs) Never done this before. Uh, I'm preaching a whole sermon on a number, and that number is 153. You can think of this as the gospel according to 153. Uh, 153 is the number of fish caught in the net uh, by Peter and the others after Jesus told them what to do. Uh, The number 153 is not some inconspicuous detail, even if it was just a minor detail in the story. We'd still need to interpret it. But really, as you're reading through the story, it just pops right off the page. It jumps out at you, and it begs for an explanation. And not surprisingly, many explanations have been given over the course of church history. The first question uh, that usually gets asked with regard to this number in the text is, is this. Is this number literal or symbolic? That's how it's often put. In other words, is John just giving us this brute fact? Hey, they went fishing, and Jesus told them where to cast the net, and this is how many fish they got, and that's just a fact. That's all there is to it. Nothing more. Or perhaps did John make this number up and add it into the story because the number 153 has symbolic meaning. And besides that, you know how it is with fishing stories anyway. They're always getting exaggerated. Who tells the truth when it comes to fishing, right? Well, actually, uh, this number is both literal and symbolic. This is certainly a stor- an historical event. Uh, someone actually counted the fish in the net and found there were 153 of them in there. This is not some exaggerated fishing story. This actually happened. The whole account, of course, is history. But it's not just brute fact. This is uh, All of this is loaded with meaning, including this number. This is a number that has symbolic value, symbolic significance. Uh, the Bible actually gives us a theology of numbers. We Uh, Sometimes referred to this as numerology, when the Bible uses numbers symbolically, when it gives certain theological significance or symbolic significance to certain numbers. There are certain numbers that accumulate uh, very specific meanings as you move through Scripture. I'll give you a few examples of this so you can see what I'm talking about. The number one uh, in Scripture is obviously associated with God. There is one God, one Lord. Uh, The number three, of course, is also associated with God because this one God exists in three persons, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So three in Scripture is often considered uh, the number of the divine, the number of perfection and holiness. And so, for example, the angels cry out to God, holy, 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 a threefold ascription of holiness to God because God exists in three persons. The number four has to do with the creation uh, we might think of the, uh, the, this is one, again, that may be pretty obvious. You might think of the four points of the compass, and so obviously four is associated uh, with the creation, with the world. Uh, in the Bible, the world is described as having four corners. There are four living creatures in the book of Revelation who symbolize all of creation in the book of Revelation. Uh, humanity is often described in a fourfold way. 
when the Bible wants to sum up all of humanity. So, for example, in the book of Revelation, uh, all of humanity is described as every tribe, language, people, and nation. See, it's a fourfold description. Um, the created cosmos has four zones or four regions to it. So, again, in the book of Revelation, you find this. John will say, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea singing. So creation is singing in four-part harmony. Creation's praise is summed up in this fourfold way. You know, blessing, honor, glory, and power. Sometimes you'll have that fourfold way of this, you know, creation uh, or, or humanity uh, declaring God's praises in this fourfold way. It kind of sums up all of creation. In the book of Job, uh, Job faces four disasters at the beginning of the book. And it's really the narrator's way of telling us that Job's whole world, Job's cosmos as it were, is collapsing. Job's world is falling apart. It's falling in on itself. So four is the number of the world. Seven is the number of perfection and totality because it is three plus four. So if God's number is three and creation's number is four and you put them together, that's everything. That's the union of heaven and earth. It's the union of the divine and the human. It's, it's the union of God with his creation. So there are seven days in a week because of God's creation pattern. Seven is the number of perfection, totality. But if seven is the number of perfection, then what is six? Six is the number of imperfection, the number of falling short of that perfection. Six is a sign that man has fallen short of that Sabbath glory and rest. Or sometimes six is used in a kind of promissory way. A seventh is promise. Sabbath rest is promise. That's how the number six works in the book of Ruth. Boaz gives to Ruth six ephahs of flour to say there will be a seventh. Because it's all about Boaz giving Ruth rest. Well, he gives her six to say, look, here's six, the seventh is coming. That Sabbath rest is on the way. But six is that number falling short. You're not there yet. Likewise, three and a half is another number of imperfection because it is a broken seven. It's seven broken in half. It interrupts a week. And so in passages like Daniel 9 and Revelation 11, the number three and a half is used symbolically. might be literal as well, but it's also got symbolic significance. Jesus' ministry lasted three and a half years before it was interrupted by the crucifixion. Eight is the number of new creation. Uh, the first day of the week is sometimes described as the eighth day. It marks a new beginning. So the eighth day. Uh, circumcision takes place on the eighth day because it's a new beginning. The child is now a new creation. Jesus rose from the dead on the eighth day. We've already seen that in John's account of, uh, of the resurrection. Twelve is, and I should mention one other thing there, that's also why baptismal fonts traditionally have eight sides because it's the waters of new life. Here's where you make your new beginning. It's in the waters of baptism. So the baptismal font has eight sides. Uh, twelve is the number associated with the people of God. You have twelve tribes of Israel. Again, this is obvious. Twelve apostles who are called to form the nucleus of a new Israel. Uh, the new Jerusalem that represents the people of God in the book of Revelation has twelve gates, twelve foundation stones, uh, the wall of the New Jerusalem is 144 cubits, which is 12 squared. Okay, we can keep going with this. I'm going to jump all the way ahead to 153, okay? I'm sure you're happy about that. We won't go through every single number, but let's jump ahead to 153. What can we say about this number? What is the numerology? What is the theological meaning of 153? Well, let's start with this. 
Uh, Augustine, who was a very careful student of Scripture, observed that 153 is the triangular of 17. Now, this is church, not a math class, so let me tell you what that means. I didn't know this either. It's just the kind of thing that that, uh, is an interesting fact about the number 153. If you take all the numbers, 1 through 17, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and you add them up, and you go all the way up to 17 and add all those numbers up, you get 153. And so we call that the triangulation. 153 is the triangulation of 17. Now, why does that matter? Well, there's a relationship between 153 and 17 in the Bible that shows up a lot. Let's keep that in mind. Let's dig a little deeper here. Let's think about something else here. In ancient cultures, letters also doubled as numbers. This is what is known as gematria. And you may not think about this a whole lot. Uh, because, you know, in our culture, we use Roman numerals and Arabic numbers. So we've got, a le- we've got an alphabet, and then we've got a set of numbers, and they're not the same. You know, that's, that's how our system works. But um, we're still familiar with this, because at, at some point you probably studied Roman numerals. You probably know something about Roman numerals. If you didn't study them in school, well, at least the Super Bowl. Everybody knows about the Super Bowl, right? When the Super Bowl wants to say, this is Super Bowl 50 or Super Bowl 51, they use Roman numerals. So we all have some familiarity with Roman numerals. Roman numerals are actually letters, they're Roman letters, that have been given a numerical value. So X is 10, V is 5, L is 50, C is 100, M is 1,000, and so on. And then you put these letters together in a certain way, and it creates a number. Now, the ancient Romans did that. Uh, But ancient speakers of Hebrew and Greek did the same kind of thing. Their letters had numerical values. And what that means is every word has a numerical value that you can find by adding up the numerical equivalent of the letters. Every word composed of letters is also a number. Here's one famous example of that that um, I think really sort of proves the point. Uh, uh, the number 666, the number 666 in the book of Revelation. It is the number of the beast in the book of Revelation. What's interesting is that if you take the letters of the name Nero Caesar, Caesar was, uh, Nero was the Caesar at the time when John was rioting, he was persecuting Christians. If you take the letters of his name and you add them up, you know what you get? 666. Six, which has led some to believe that the beast of Revelation, whose number is 666, must be Nero. Okay, whether that's the case or not, there, there is something going on there, some kind of connection. Well, here's something to consider, getting back to John 21. In Ezekiel 47, there is an interesting prophecy that very clearly connects with John 21. Ezekiel 47 and John 21. Ezekiel, the prophet, is having a vision of the glory of the new covenant that will ultimately be put into effect when the Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom. And in Ezekiel's vision, he sees this as a time of great global growth for the kingdom of God. The Messiah will come and bring blessing not just to Israel, but to all the nations as well. And the way Ezekiel describes this, this growth for the kingdom of God, is in terms of a flood. Only not a flood like in Noah's day, which you could say was a flood of wrath, wiping out the the, the creation, all of humanity except Noah's family. No, this will be a flood of life. God will flood the nations with the waters of life. Living water is going to flow out of the temple. And first it's going to be ankle deep and then knee deep and then waist deep. And it's ultimately going to flow out to fill the whole earth. 
this living water flowing out of God's temple. And as those living waters reach the nations and bring life and rejuvenation and healing to the nations, even going to places that were dead or desolate before and bringing life, Ezekiel says, fishermen, so here's a connection with John 21, fishermen will stand at En Gedi and En Glaim and will spread their nets. And there they will catch fish. Now this is what's interesting. The numerical value of Engedi is 17. The numerical value of Eglam is 153. And no, that is not a coincidence. When Ezekiel is describing the growth of the church and the gospel going out to the nations, he says, fishermen will stand at a place with the numerical value 17 and at a place with the numerical value 153, and this is where they will catch the fish, where they will bring the nations into the kingdom. Peter hauls in 153 fish here in John 21. That's 17 triangulated. Hmm, very interesting. Maybe what's happening here is Jesus is reinstating Peter in such a way with this catch of fish that he's saying, look, Peter, you're going to be a fisher of men. That's what I've talked to you about ever since I first called you. And you remember that prophecy in Ezekiel about how the, 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 the gospel is going to go out to the nations and God's going to flood the nations with these living waters and people will stand at En Gedi and In Glam and catch fish. Well, Peter, that's you. The prophecies of Ezekiel are going to begin to be fulfilled in your ministry. Indeed, remember in Scripture, fish symbolize Gentiles, and the sea symbolizes the Gentile world, the Gentile nations, and their tumult. Many different kinds of fish are caught in this net in John chapter 21, signifying the variety of nations, the variety of people groups that will be caught in the net of the gospel. The gospel is going to go out to all nations. It's not restricted to this or that people group. It's for all peoples. Every different kind of fish is going to be caught. In fact, Jerome said there were 153 different kinds of fish in the Sea of Galilee that had been identified. I don't know if that was really true or not, and there may be many more or fewer kinds of fish in that sea today. Don't know. But that's how Jerome interpreted these different kinds of fish, you know, all different kinds of fish being caught. It represents the different nations. It's also worth noting in John 21, the net doesn't break. And John must be calling attention to that because normally a net would have torn with that many fish, but not here. Just like John back in uh, an earlier chapter called attention to the fact that the high priestly garment of Jesus was not torn when they stripped him of that garment. That garment was not torn. So this net is not going to tear, which tells you the church can hold this great variety of people without breaking apart. That's the kind of community the church is supposed to be. This wide variety of different people groups brought together into the one church. And to top it off, consider this connection. Peter plunges himself into the sea. He plunges himself into the sea. What Old Testament prophet is famous for jumping into the sea? It's Jonah. And what was Jonah's mission? It was to take the word of God to the Gentile city of Nineveh. Now, Jonah was reluctant to do that. He was reluctant to go to the Gentiles. Peter's going to be kind of reluctant to go to the Gentiles as well. But that's the mission. Jonah was to go to the Gentiles. Peter's going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's interesting to see how is Peter identified in John chapter 21, verses 15, 16, and 17. Different translations do different things with this, but the best reading is Jesus addresses Peter as Simon, son of Jonah. 
Three times. Three times Peter is called Simon, son of Jonah. He's another Jonah with a mission that includes the Gentiles. Maybe Peter's father's name was really Jonah. That's certainly possible. But whether it was or not, you can't help but make a symbolic connection with the prophet Jonah. And Peter will indeed be among the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles when he goes to the Gentile family of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. It is a Jonah-like mission of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Jonah went to a Gentile city. Peter's going to go to a Gentile family. Same kind of mission and same kind of success. All the pieces of the puzzle really seem to fit together here. It all snaps together very well. This is not by accident. This is not by coincidence. This is by divine design. In fact, we can keep going with this. Again, remember, 153 is 17 triangulated. Think about this. Consider this connection. At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit, the, the living water is poured out from heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out from heaven on Peter and the other disciples. Peter preaches, and 3,000 people are saved. So you can see the, the water's starting to get deeper. Now you've got 3,000 people who are saved. But what's interesting is how Luke records this in Acts. He tells us that people from all over the Roman Empire were gathered together in Jerusalem for the feast. In fact, if you look at the list of nations represented there in Acts chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, you will find 17 nations. 17 nations represented. 17 nations converted there in Acts chapter 2. And the number 17 in that table of nations, as it were, that Luke gives to us in Acts chapter 2 is interesting because it connects with really what is the master list of nations in Genesis chapter 10. The table of nations in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 10. These are the different people groups that came out of the scattering from the Tower of Babel. And what you find there is there are 70 nations. Originally, there were 70 nations in the world. Now, we've continued to subdivide from that, but there were 70 nations. That's 7 times 10. Well, the 17 nations in Acts chapter 2, that's 7 plus 10. So again, you have all these connections. And I realize these connections may seem bizarre to us. Maybe we're not used to reading texts uh, that work this way. Modern books don't usually... Uh, use numbers in this kind of symbolic way. But we need to remember the Bible's not a modern text. It's an ancient text. And these kinds of symbolic numbers are very common as features of ancient sacred texts. In fact, let, let's build a little bit on that connection between John 21 and Acts chapter 2. What happens in John 21 and what happens at Pentecost. In all kinds of ways, John anticipates Pentecost in his gospel. And so, for example, in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus teaches we must be born again. We must be born from above by the water and the Spirit. Well, in Acts chapter 2, that's what happens. The Spirit is poured out from above, and people are born anew in the waters of baptism. Pentecost is a new birth event. It is, in a way, the fulfillment of John chapter 3. Not the only fulfillment, but it's the beginning of John chapter 3 coming to fulfillment. This birth of water and Spirit as the Holy Spirit is poured out from above. This birth from above happens. John chapter 7, Jesus teaches that when the Holy Spirit is given, he's looking ahead to the giving of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is given, he will flow out of each of us like a river of living water. 
Well, that's kind of like saying each one of us is a, is a miniature temple, a miniature house for God to dwell in, a miniature fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 47. We're miniature temples with the Holy Spirit flowing out of us. But when does that start to happen? It starts at Pentecost. It anticipates Pentecost. It looks ahead to Pentecost. But anticipations of Pentecost especially happen in John's Gospel, clustered around Christ's death and resurrection. That's where you really see this. So when Jesus dies on the cross in John chapter 19, what happens? John chapter 19, verse 30 says that when Jesus died, he gave up his spirit. I think that's got to be a double entendre because John is the master of the double entendre. Jesus gave up his spirit at his death. Certainly that refers to his human spirit as his human spirit and body are torn apart. That's what death is. But what has Jesus been talking about leading up to his crucifixion in the upper room with his disciples? He's talked about how he would give them his spirit. He would give them his spirit. Well, what happens at his death? He gives up his spirit. He gives up the Holy Spirit. And perhaps even the water that flowed from his pierced side mixed with his blood flowing out of his pierced side point to the Holy Spirit flowing from the crucified church to form his bride. The church, the water and the blood flow out. Water is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. The Holy Spirit flowing out from Jesus' heart to our hearts. That's what you have pictured there. When the risen Christ appears to the disciples in a locked room in John chapter 20, verse 22, he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. That is known as the Johannine Pentecost. The Johannine Pentecost, it points ahead to the giving of the Holy Spirit in a more visible and public way in Acts chapter 2. Here Jesus is already in an anticipatory way giving the Spirit to his disciples who have gathered. And then there's this anticipation of Pentecost in the number 153. What does 153 mean in John's Gospel? It means Pentecost. It points us ahead to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the mission the Spirit will empower us to fulfill. The 17 nations in Acts chapter 2 of Pentecost connect with 153 fish here. This hall of fish is a picture of what the Spirit-filled church will do as it goes fishing for men from all nations as we cast out the net of the gospel. Indeed, there are other connections we can make. Those are anticipations of Pentecost. Other anticipations of success in the Gentile mission. Here's here's just another one that I'll give to you. 17 is associated with Joseph in the book of Genesis. 17 in the book of Genesis is associated with Joseph, who comes to rule over Gentiles. He comes to rule over the Egyptians, and he converts Egyptians in the book of Genesis. Joseph was sold into Egyptian slavery at 17 years of age, taken off. It's not the mission he was looking for, but it's the mission God gave him. He was taken to Egypt at 17 years of age. After Joseph is promoted to ruler over Egypt, he becomes the savior of the world. Feeding the world bread, giving the world bread out of his storehouse. This includes saving his father and his brothers by giving them food from his stores as well. And we're told in the book of Genesis that his father Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years before he passed away. This number 17 is connected to the conversion and the salvation of the Gentiles in the book of Genesis. You see that? 
You see the big picture here? You see this historical fact of hauling in 153 fish? It is symbolic of something much greater. It is symbolic of what happens after Pentecost. It is symbolic of the church's mission to the nations. In fact, I find this interesting too. Unlike the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a record of the Great Commission where Jesus directly tells his followers to go make the world's nations his disciples. You find that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They've all got a record of the Great Commission, maybe in slightly different form, but it's there. John does not. Or does he? Does John record the Great Commission? Well, I would say in John's Gospel, the number 153 is the Great Commission. The number 153 stands for the Great Commission in John's Gospel when we understand it. It's code for the Great Commission. It signals or signifies the Great Commission. All throughout John's Gospel, he's been communicating the Gospel in symbols. That's what John's Gospel is. The the Gospel communicated in symbols. Well, here he communicates our mission in a symbol, in a symbolic number. And so we can say, starting with Peter, the church has a mission to the nations. We are to be fishers of men, casting the net of the Gospel into all the world. And in John's Gospel, what we find is not just that we have a duty to take the Gospel to the nations, not just an obligation, but we find there's also a promise of success. The church's nets will be full. They'll be supernaturally full, and supernaturally, they won't tear. The net won't break, even as it becomes full. The one holy Catholic and apostolic church will come to contain the nations of the world. The one holy Catholic apostolic church will will come to contain all different kinds of people, just as there are all different kinds of of fish. As the church brings the nations to Christ, all different kinds of fish will be hauled into the church's boat. Last week we saw this passage in John is really about Peter's restoration. Peter is forgiven by the very Lord he denied. And as he realizes this is the Lord on the beach and he realizes this is what's happening, he puts on his garment like he knows he's being reinvested with office and authority. Because when you were ordained to an office, you would put on a robe. So Peter puts on his robe and then he jumps in the water, which is kind of an odd thing to do. But he jumps in the water. It's like a baptism. It's like a new baptism for Peter. And then he swims to the shore and he has a meal with Jesus. So think about that pattern. Washing with water, followed by a meal. That's a familiar pattern. He has a meal with Jesus around a fire because he had denied Jesus that night around a fire. The night of Jesus' trial, he was around a fire when he denied Jesus. And so Peter is purified by water and fire. By water and flame, Peter is restored. But now we see there's something else going on here. This is not just about Peter being forgiven and restored. It's about Peter's mission. His call to be a fisher of men, including the Gentiles. And when Peter obeys, his net will be full. But what did we see last week? Peter's restoration is a picture of ours. What Jesus does for Peter, he does for all of us. Well, the same is true here. In giving Peter a mission, he's also giving us a mission. He commissions Peter here, and that means we've been commissioned as well. We have this mission to take the gospel to the nations. Now, we find ourselves living in a time of regional, national, and global crisis. 
It is a time of crisis, whether you think it's a real crisis or a somewhat manufactured crisis, it is a crisis. It is a time of isolation. It is a time of great fear and anxiety. It is a time of dehumanization. There's really no other way to describe it. It's a time of dehumanization. There's something dehumanizing about having to keep our distance from one another. There's something dehumanizing about not being able to to shake hands and to hug. We need the human touch. It's dehumanizing to take that away from us. There's something dehumanizing about having to go out and always have half your face covered with a mask. I'm not saying these precautions aren't necessary in, in, in some or a lot of cases. But I'm just saying, we need to understand what they do to us. There's something dehumanizing about putting up caution tape around playgrounds. That's dehumanizing. There's something dehumanizing about 30-plus million people losing their jobs because work is critical to our humanity. It's central to who we are as creatures made in God's image. We're made for purposeful work. You take that away, there's something dehumanizing about that. There's something dehumanizing about sitting home watching Netflix and just taking government checks all the time. That's dehumanizing. It's degrading. I'm not saying that, that, that all these things are, 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 are unnecessary. Obviously, there's a lot of things that we can't do anything about. But what I am saying is we need to understand the effect of these things on ourselves and others. And in the midst of this, we need to figure out what the church's mission looks like. What does it mean to be the church in the midst of all of this? How do we show what it means to be deeply, fully, and truly human? In the midst of all this, in the midst of this crisis, how do we cast our nets out into the world, our gospel net, so we can make the haul of fish? How do we explain and embody before the world's watching eyes what it means to live by Christ's truth, to put on display his glory and his beauty and his wisdom in our lives? That is our mission right now, to figure those things out, to do those things. Right now is no time for the church to hide. No time for the church to go into hiding. Rather, it is our time to shine and to show the world where real hope is found. That the real hope of the world is not found in politicians or in doctors or in medicines or in vaccines. That's what I keep hearing. Oh, we can go back to normal when there's a vaccine. We don't put our hope. Those things may be good. God may work through those things. They may be wonderful, but that's not where our hope is. The only hope of the world is Christ. The only salvation of the world is found in Christ. The only victory over death is found in Christ. The only way you can overcome fears and anxieties is in Christ. This is our mission, to proclaim Christ as the world's hope. This is the gospel according to the number 153. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.